Star City Games Seattle on the show, and he talked about his experience. So we actually wanted to go over some of the uh, footage where he was playing so we could kind of deconstruct the plays and see what was really going on in these games. Sam, what do you think about this? Uh, Yeah, and this is definitely a really interesting matchup. You've got Bug Delver, which is becoming one of the top-tier decks, probably the top deck right now against Death and Taxes, which is there a deck that has more activated abilities that it can activate? Yeah, I think Death and Taxes, we've seen <clears throat> even all the way back from last summer, uh, both from the Legacy Weekend, um, as well as uh, some pretty big-name Grand Prix in Europe, we've seen Death and Taxes really make strides to become a top-tier aggro control deck um, that doesn't feature blue, so... I think that's one of the main draws for Death and Taxes, being able to essentially win matches that it seems like on paper it would not be able to do. So, pretty good highlight of a uh, of a match between two very powerful decks that we would see in Legacy. And two very local Seattle players, so uh, Batman, as he's known, and Greg both play at the same store, so must be kind of cool to uh, be facing off against somebody you know. Hint, hint. What else do we have uh, lined up on this cast? Uh, so we're probably going to talk about uh, the Journey into Garbage uh, spoilers. Oh, sorry, into Nick's. Oh, is there a new set coming out? I, I never really keep track. Yeah, because there's nothing good in it. So we'll talk about how there's nothing good in it uh, after going over the footage, and then maybe we'll get to other things, because I have no idea what we're doing. Well, maybe we can cap off some interesting plays of the week. Yep, that's a, that sounds like an idea. Unfortunately, I won't be able to contribute, because I haven't played a game of Magic in two weeks. That's really sad. All right, so uh, this video, yeah? This video. Okay, so uh, hold on. Let me um, let me Google it, YouTube, whatever. Oh, hey, I know that guy. He stayed with me. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he won, but then you didn't. Oh, Matt. <laughs> hey, at least I made top eight. <laughs> no, it would have been pretty amazing had both of you just, like, run a runnered uh, win-win. So then... That thought had crossed my mind as... Um, as I was nearing like five oh six oh, so I think we already chatted about it last time. And then imagine if um, you had stayed with somebody else, you could have passed that first place essence on to someone. You could have charged somebody for that. It's like exactly you, you the know, same conversation yeah, Sam I and I had say. <laughs> in a previous podcast. Wow, <sighs> fancy that. Yeah. Okay, so finally got it up. Um, Whoa. <coughs> so match starts <laughs> off. <laughs> Uh, between David Bauman and Greg Mitchell. David's on the play. He's first seed with Death and Taxes, which means he did very well in the Swiss rounds. Greg's uh, third place, so it looks like going first up until the finals has helped them both out. David starts off with Planes Go, which uh, yeah, I've played a white deck before from time to time. Matt, I know you have two. What does that usually signify? It signifies he doesn't have any of the really good cards in his deck, like... Aether Vial, Mother of Runes, etc. Because he's in the play, he doesn't have to worry about days. You can't do anything about Force of Will, so if he has Aether Vial here or Mother of Runes, he has to jam it as hard as he can. Because he's holding white up, if I were Greg, I would know that that's basically Swords of Plowshares mana, very likely, and if not, he just has a bad hand. Right. Sam? Um, I agree. It's either he's missing, uh, he's probably just missing something to do, I think, is the, is the almost problem for him. Okay, so Greg then follows that up, uh, his first turn, with a Underground Sea. Yeah, turn one Underground Sea, not even a fetch land, into a Delver. And this, uh, this is pretty much the best turn one play a Delver deck can, 
can have against an aggro deck. Lay out the threat, don't expose yourself to um, to a fetch land, not that it really matters coming from a white um, white producing land, but... Uh, and then pass the turn back with six cards in hand. So pretty, Looking pretty good. So, hypothetically, you're Greg, mm-hmm. and in your hand you have a fetch and a deathrite shaman. Do you run out the deathrite shaman or the delver? I'll let uh, Sam answer first. I want to I wanna f- close it out. Hmm, that's a tough one. I think uh, I think you're probably better off on the Delver in this position because knowing that uh, David has not played something he's not like getting ready to go, you want to be as aggressive as possible and possibly just beat him before he really gets anything going. Yep, I was going to agree with that. If he had a if he had a stronger turn one play, maybe of like Vile, I might be tempted to just play Deathrite Shaman. So like on turn two, I could like him to Torok and then do something else and. Man, I, I agree with both of you guys now. Um, both from Sam's pers- perspective of David didn't dep- deploy a threat, so we want to be very aggressive and try to essentially find every opportunity to buy tempo back from um, the exchange of spells and plays. <coughs> and at the same time, David didn't also play Aetherval to start accelerating his deployment. So Deathrite Shaman at that point also doesn't need to counteract the tempo loss. So, yeah, you, you guys nailed it. <laughs> so the It's easy going last. I just agree with everyone. <laughs> so then we can say at the end of uh, Greg's turn, you have Batman play Swords to Plowshares on the Delver Secret. So what's the problem with playing Swords to Plowshares when you have no mana open? Hmm. Hmm. It seems like your spells may not get, may get countered for days. They could get mana tithed. <laughs> Is that not the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Judge, <laughs> judges familiar. Was was there a force of will cast? No, it turns out actually uh, Greg has the days here, which he's trying to protect his Delver again. He's as he said, he's on the aggro plan. I think if I were David here, and you have nothing better to do next turn, if you really need to get rid of that Delver, if you're really scared of that Delver, you wait to untap because there's no reason not to. I disagree. I think there is a reason not to, and it's what he did in the next turn. <laughs> well, I'm just saying play. By okay, play. okay. Let's... Yeah, well, let's say at the end of turn one, you're David, and you have to evaluate, how am I going to lose this game? Because obviously you have access to your own cards, and uh, we'll get to that on turn two. But Greg is not playing a deck with lightning bolts, which means the only source of damage that he'll be able to get through is through combat. And Death and Tax is a deck that is very capable of shutting down combat in most um, most paths. Um, Defentaxis also plays a bunch of flyers, which Bug Delver tends to have. Either Tarmogoyfs, um, or flyers like Tombstalker, maybe like a Click, maybe uh, True Name Nemesis, which is a problem um, to most decks, and possibly even Deathrite Shaman, which unfortunately can't really do too much about. Um, so, if the, if David considers Delver Secrets a threat, he could potentially wait until he's daze-proof, and that way the only counterspell that Greg would have would be Force Will, that cannot legitimately counter Source Supply Shares. I think maybe another consideration of maybe why he casted it in turn is he's worried about discard. And that all leads into David's turn two. So, Sam, why don't you fill us in on what happens on turn two? So on turn two, uh, David has a Stoneforge Mystic in hand, which he has had in hand since the beginning of the game. He puts down a cavern naming, I assume, human, uh, taps out, and plays Stoneforge Mystic. So he is, again, playing straight into days, but 
the odds of Greg having two dazes in addition to his underground sea and his delver kind of low. You know the cavern souls, you know, stops the thing from being countered, right? You, you, only, oh, yeah. if you I, right always, only if you name the right creature type. I always forget cavern somehow, even though I play it in Merfolk. Uh, David fetches up a batter skull. So again, this is where I think it doesn't really matter that he missed out on the Delver, because Delver doing three damage doesn't matter that much when you're going to be gaining four life a turn. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But I think that's a really big assumption, though. In a deck with, you know, four removal spells and say that thing maybe didn't make it through or whatever... There's a few situations where, okay, you go for Batter Skull, and then suddenly I have a stranded Batter Skull. I think it's still, I mean, unless he has Stoneforge Mystic number two in his hand, to maybe go for Jeet. Maybe. I think that's a little bit of a hard call, considering that Greg Mitchell is playing Abrupt Decanus deck. And keep in mind, too, that Greg is now down to zero mana available. Oh, true. Um, so, it w- so it would take two turns to get the Abrupt Decay active. I think Greg's list also ran a little bit unusual mix of two Disfigure main deck. Yeah. Which may or may not... Um, Be indicative of... Sti- right, stifle of some of David's plans. Um, but I think at that point I would still try to get the biggest threat on the board, which is Batterskull. Um, it's not even Stoneforge Mystic. It's really just getting Batterskull into play. Um, Greg's deck has very, very few ways to interact with the artifact once it's in there. Okay, so well we see... Batman cast uh, Stoneforge Mystic, it resolves, he goes for Batter Skull. Now, I will point out, he does spend a bit of extra time in his library, so maybe he was considering getting a GTA rather than a uh, Batter Skull. Mm. I mean, he, Interesting. he's also playing the Sword of Fire and Ice main, is he not? Um, I think he was, yeah. I think he's playing more of a traditional package, especially in light of True Name Nemesis and trying to get around that. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's... You could argue, if he knew that, say... Um, Greg was on double Trune Nemesis instead of, say, Tombstalker. That if he really feared Trune Nemesis, that yeah, Sword of Fire and Ice here might be okay. The only problem is, if he just plays Tarmogoyf, then your Sword of Fire and Ice is mm, maybe not as good. Yeah, it's mostly blinked. Well, we get into the third turn, we see Greg drop down the C again, and then cast that disfigure. So, yeah, it looks like uh, by this sequence, you know, plays, David's looking pretty down and out. David's in a rough position no. here because Greg, let's also point out, flipped his uh, flipped his Delver. So David has uh, has two lands in play. Greg has one land in play and an attacking 3-2 flyer. So this also, this amount of protection, like the way he's kind of like, you know, get rid of your stuff. I don't want any of your stuff on board. This is the, I'm riding this threat to victory I'm and I'm going to protect it at all costs. And if you notice, he flips a spell pierce. So realistically... This is going to be one of the few windows on uh, David's third turn where if he has a piece of removal, he needs to play it now because the only out is Force of Will. Because if he untaps, you know, Greg is on Spell Pierce. Right. Well, it looks like David's third turn, he plays down a port and then just passes the turn. So looks like he's cognizant of the fact that, hey, he doesn't want any his spells countered or things destroyed. But then he... It's curious, like... He lets uh, he lets Greg untap, and then cast Swords to Plowshares. I think if it were me, I would just cast Swords to Plowshares and then tap him down with the Port uh, Cavern. Well, I think that's what he did in the upkeep. He wanted to make sure that if Greg wants to fight over the Swords to Plowshares, which is a significant significant piece of removal in in light of the circumstances. I mean, the only creature on the board is a Flip Delver against an opponent with three lands in play. So. Likelihood, it's not going to stay for a while. 
But if he wants to fight over it, why fight it on your turn when you can have your opponent fight it on their turn? And I think the reason he's not porting here is because he would rather Greg play the spell pierce and David pay it than him port and Greg not be able to play the spell pierce and have it just sitting there in hand to be used later. So this way he's saying, I want that spell pierce not in your hand if you want to keep yep. this guy. But there still is a possibility, like, allowing him to untap means if he has Brainstorm, he can go get Force of Will if, you know, if the magic gods allow it, and suddenly your second piece of removal is now gone. Yeah, that'd, that'd be a tough spot. I know in, uh, in being in Greg's situation, for instance, I would probably want to very heavily protect the Delver, considering my opponent just played his second sorts of Plasher. So the likelihood of ha him having a third is quite low, and there's a pretty good chance that once you counter the second source of Plashers, you could probably ride that Delver to victory, as long as you eliminate all the flyers that uh, that David casts. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Greg lets it resolve. Um, the Delver goes plowing, and then David follows that up with porting Greg's island. So, more or less, uh, everything that David wanted to achieve happened on Greg's third or fourth turn. I think it's third turn. Um, Greg, of course, responds with Brainstorm to use the mana while he still can. Try to find uh, a little bit better of a draw step. Maybe even find a, a fetch land or whatever. And uh, that pretty much wraps up Greg's turn after a quick wasteland of the port. So now, because he's so constrained on mana, I definitely think the wasteland on the port is the right call. What's the situation where wasteland on cavern is correct here? Um, I'd probably say if you have... No creature removal. I think another one would be if on David's turn three he had played a, yet again, if he had played a threat rather than sitting back, that would be another time when you might go for cavern, be aggressive, and try and take away as much of his useful mana. Okay. That's fair. So I think from here on out, uh, Greg looks like he's in a bad spot. I think we're just going to wrap up this game one. Um, spoiler alert, David wins that series, uh, wins the game. Um, after he casts Aether Vial and starts being able to deploy his threats without having to cast spend mana on them. So, it uh, looks like there may have been an abrupt decay, but whatever. Yeah, not good enough. It's, uh, it's, it's mostly a mana advantage from that point. Um, Greg spent too much of his resources trying to keep things going. And we can see this game actually drags out for, you know, another ten minutes, and it's... I mean, I can still see here at 9.22, Greg is still on Underground Sea. Yeah. Oh, it looks like the uh, Dark Confidant that he cast on turn four ended up never netting Greg another land. Oh, that's... Which is quite unfortunate because it sped up the clock all in the meantime. Well, and we've talked a lot about how much uh, we dislike these mana bases that are, uh, you know, very few duels, uh, sometimes more fetches than duels, and then Deathrite Shaman and just hoping to rely on that to get you somewhere. And he never got beyond his original Underground Sea and a Deathrite Shaman later. And, I mean, that can be a real problem, especially when playing against a deck like, say, Patriot, right? When they have eight removal spells. So, you know, four Swords of Polishers and four Lightning Bolts against, you know, all of your creatures except, you know, Tarmogoyf that die to it. Seems kind of bad. Right, and I think that's why the deck like Blue-White-Red Delver is able to succeed in an existing um, metagame where you have, like, these Delver decks that really have low-threat, high-reactive card elements. Um... Once you deal for first two or three threats, the deck just kind of falls apart and has to use all its cantrips to dig, 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 and find something relevant without actually being able to present a threat in a clock and close the game out in due order. 
And then as if to really punch Greg in the face here, uh, I'm just looking at the very closing board state. David's got a Revoker with a Sword of Fire and Ice on it, a Revoker, a Vial on 3, a Flicker Wisp, and an Avon Mind Sensor. So even if you draw that fetch land, it probably doesn't do anything. And we've been seeing um, Avon Mind Sensor get cut quite a bit from a lot of lists. Uh, people just really aren't playing that card anymore. However, with a lot of uh, three-color mana bases and you know Miracles trying to you know, get its basics online and everything, Avon Mind Sensor seems like a... Uh, pretty decent card. Now, I will point out though one of the downsides is when you're playing a uh, Deathrite Shaman deck like this if they fetch and fail to get something they still have one mana one time from that fetch land off of Deathrite Shaman which is better for them than it used to be when it would just be fetch. I don't find it that sucks. Yep. So so have, <laughs> I, so have either of you actually played Bugdelver in a big tournament? I have not. I've watched it be played a bunch. Uh, Jeff Chen who top, uh, top aided Dallas plays it a lot locally, so I've watched it be played a lot, but I have not first played it. I'm trying to think, the last time I put together Bug, um, no, it's probably been a close to about eight months before since I've last touched the deck. Um, I used to have a local friend who unfortunately moved to Australia. Well, fortunately for him, because he's having a blast, but unfortunately for me, because my friend moved away. Uh, he was, I'd say probably 110% on Bug Delver. Uh, he recognized it pretty early as a powerful combination of cards between Delver and Goyf and Force Will Days, even Sylvan Library as a one-of. He always included that in Abrupt Decay. Um, and I think for the most part, he had like something close to like 75-80% to 80 win rate with the deck in tournaments. Sweet Jesus. Yeah, he's he was really, really good with the deck, really comfortable with it. Um, so the deck certainly has a lot going for it, and, and it has a few pretty lopsided matches. Um, probably in its against its favor. So burn, for instance, is really bad matchup for it because there's there's no way you can put any combination of cards that can beat the burn deck um, unless they get extremely unlucky. Uh, I think another one is goblins. Goblins tends to be pretty good against it as well. Um, dealing with a lot of small creatures is pretty rough for the bug delver deck. Well. Anyway, moving on to game two, so we can see that Greg is going to be on the play because, you know, he lost. So he starts off with Underground Sea Deathrite Shaman. So assuming we kind of can figure out what he boarded in, which is assuming, like, Golgari Charms and stuff to get rid of small creatures and such. Again, if you have Delver right now, do you play Delver or Deathrite Shaman? On the play? On the play. I would probably say, if you have a fetch land, because you already know that the Death and Taxes does not um, generally... Yeah, it doesn't generally have uh, fetch lands, and I guess in this case, Greg knows exactly if he has it or not. But uh, you start off with Deathrite Shaman if you have a fetch land, and that'll give you access to potentially three mana, maybe cast like a Liliana, maybe cast Wasteland. Like yeah, Hymtatarak plus Wasteland could be a play on turn two. Right, or like Delver, Ponder, Wasteland. That'll give you enough mana to do a lot of things. Um, so I think Deathrite Shaman opens up a lot more lines of play than just going Delver Go, because you're not really going to be going too crazy. And yeah, we see Greg opt for a turn two Liliana the Veil, which is brutal, brutal on turn two against an opponent with creatures. Okay, so we see uh, Cavern into Mom, and then yeah, followed by just ouch. probably probably Death and Taxes favorite turn one, if I had to guess. You can't counter this thing that makes you two-for-one yourself, and then oops. Right. And even Greg's turn is, is pretty brutal, too, considering he's playing only two copies, one main, one side of Liliana the Veil. 
Um, it, it started... That was a pretty good turn for Greg. I could probably see why, uh, spoiler alert, he won game two. Uh, I think he followed it up with a Wasteland on the Cavern, and then a Hymtotorak. So it's like, wow, this is brutal. Card advantage. It's a disease and that then, wins uh, games. And then Liliana takes up to two. If he wants to attack Liliana to make sure that there's no sack outlet, he would have to attack into an untapped Deathrite Shaman. But uh, Greg opts to make mana instead and just kill it outright with Disfigure. So everything's coming up perfect for Greg in this uh, opener. I agree. I mean, ugh. ugh. Then he gets a library online, so he's just, he's got everything. I mean, once you get Sylvan Library in this matchup, and you just kind of just, you're just drawing to find your removal, and yeah. Well, like, at this point, uh, he's got, I'm skip, skipped ahead a bit, David has Rest in Peace, uh, Rashid and Port, Plains. Greg has Liliana on two, Deathrite Shaman, two lands, and a Sylvan Library. Yeah, yeah. Even even just as a two-one attacker, I think uh, Greg's still favored. Even a zero-one Goyf is pretty damn good. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I need to see much of the game. I mean, the only thing I would say that you know, Sylvan Library is a good card. Well, Sylvan Library plus making them drop a card every turn, the amount of advantage he's got here, he could potentially, without fast-forwarding through this, he could potentially just win on the back of this Deathrite Shaman over the next eighteen turns. Right. Uh, especially when you're able to draw a bunch of extra cards with the green Necropotence of Sylvan Library. Um, it's pretty damn effective. Very, very damn effective. So, uh, let's skip ahead to game three. Uh, it goes pretty, like, a slow grind here, thanks to the Liliana, making sure no one has any cards in hand. Um, plus the card selection provided by Sylvan Library. Definitely a textbook example of why the card is powerful. I think I would have given up a little bit earlier if I were um, David just to save time. I mean, mind you... Well, this is an end-timed match yeah. in the finals to see who takes all the marbles. So, I mean, uh, give give the audience a little bit of a show. I, I don't know. Like, if this were in the elimination rounds, though, I definitely would have packed it up and saved some time, because I don't think there's a set of cards there where you where you really win. Definitely agree. Yeah, definitely agree. If this was just a regular you match... You can always allow your opponent to beat themselves. That's always an okay play. But it's not like he's running, like, Dark Confidant with, you know... 20% of his deck being 5 drops, like it's not... I don't know. Okay, so game 3, let's see how it starts. A lot of shuffling, okay, here we go. So again, David starts off, he goes turn 1 Aprilvile. Greg uh, leads with a fetch land, go. Just fetch land, go. So yeah. what is this What is this telegraph? I mean, we know he's not playing Stifle, so it just means he probably just has no Delver, no Deathrite Shaman, he might have yeah, Disfigure. Yeah, it could be... It could be a mana-heavy hand, it could be a cantrip-heavy hand, um, and certainly you don't want to play the cantrips on turn one, let's say. You don't want to go fetch, land, brainstorm, put two cards back, go. You want to make effective use of your cantrips. So, unfortunately, there's a little bit of a um, roadblock with Falia cast. Um, Greg didn't have the counterspell or a removal spell for it, so it looks like Greg's a little bit on the, on the back pedal. David's able to deploy his threats. He's already got two ports out by turn three. Stoneforge Mystic into Batterskull against Greg's three lands. Um, it almost looks like Greg's on uh, going to be losing here. Aethervalt takes to three cards. I mean, three counters. I mean, three counters indicates um, Flicker Wisp, usually. Or uh, Avon Mind Sensor or something like that. Or even... Brimass. Brimass is... Oh, God. Yeah, Brimass is... is I, I mean, I remember playing against that card in the open, and 
I can positively say, once Brimaz came out, I could not win. The Oreo King Brim is very good. Yeah, especially paired with uh, Caracas. Oh, certainly, yeah. So we're, so, yeah, I'm looking, I mean, I'm at uh, 33 minutes in, and there's Stoneforge, Mystic, Thalia, Avon, Mind Sensor, Violon 2. And realistically, I... I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, how Greg was actually able to win this game. Yeah, because I had actually just left when this game had started, and I was just like, uh, I'm not going to, I can't stay. Got to make it back to the border. So he disfigures the Avon Mind Sensor so he can actually get his third land, which, yep, that, that seems fine to me. Oh, you know what? I think I found the secret. Golgari Charm cleans up rather nicely. Oh, yeah, I'm um, fast-forwarding to Golgari Charm. Yeah, it looks like it looks like throughout the whole, pretty much the whole game, David was not able to get more than three lands into play, two ports and a planes. So, meanwhile, Greg has four lands in play. So we can definitely see the mana advantages helping Greg out, even though David has much more cards to play with. David also um, gets two vials, which is kind of makes up for that land, uh, those lands that are missing too. Right, but at the same time, having drawn a vial means that he did not draw a threat. So essentially. That second vial was more or less a null card. Would you say a dead draw? Would you say he overextended into the uh, Golgari charm? Because I mean, he only got two for one, which is—I mean, it could have been much worse. But I don't—I don't think so. I think the folly is already kind of weak to Golgari charm, but without Mother in play to protect it or her, um, Thalia would pretty much die to disfigure, abrupt decay, any number of removal spells that Greg could possibly play. So I think two is about the most I would go into Golgari Charm, but three is now playing into it. So we see he flipped his Delver. Of course. And we can also see that he's floating Grip in his hand, so that batter skull is... Meh. Yeah, it's pretty good. And then a hint of track comes out, David's now in Hellbent, and yeah, that Crozen Grip's going to do a number of work on the batter skull token. Well, on the batter skull plus the token. So, I guess that's how uh, Greg's able to turn it around. The the clock presented by Stoneforge Mystic and Athalia is not the greatest. Yeah, and he obviously is not finding removal for these flying 3x, you know, Delver and Vanillian clique are doing just a little bit of work. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like he makes him spend the mana to bounce the batter skull token. Um, and then at that point, Crozen Grips. All the meanwhile, attack for three, attack for three, attack for three. Nether Runes does not make a good clock. Nope. I have just Stoneforge Mystic, when it can be blocked by a Tarmogoyf or the Threat Shaman. And yeah, I think we get to a critical turn where, like you mentioned, a bunch of flyers and Mother has to go on moat duty. I think the only card here that really that David could have brought up would be Cataclysm, mm -hmm. would keep him in the game. And <clears throat> Cataclysm has some pretty unique texts, or some pretty old texts that doesn't mention Planeswalkers. So, is that a good uh, card against Planeswalker heavy decks? Well, not against them, but if you're playing it. Yeah, well, I think what we're saying is uh, he's got Liliana out. Do you want a Cataclysm oh, into Liliana? No, no. Well, before Liliana comes down. I mean, that's that's what I'm... That's what I was looking at. No, I'm thinking... I think Cataclysm doesn't mention Planeswalkers, so it says sacrifice everything else. So it says, pick an enchantment, pick an artifact, pick a creature, pick a land, and then sacrifice everything else. Hold on, let me, let me check. I'm pretty sure. Pulling it up on Magic Info. Yep, it's true. It does actually uh, mock Planeswalkers. Because you, yeah. you do choose the artifact, creature, enchantment, and land, and then sacrifice the rest. 
Interesting. Hmm. So definitely, you want to play it when he's got Liliana on board. You just like, oops, clear the board, and you know. I think the only the only issue with that may be is um, Bug Delver's threats are probably better than your singular threats. I could certainly see like Knight of a Reliquary being a good threat to go with Cataclysm, especially since you sacrifice lands and pump it up. But when your best creature is a Revoker, but he's got Mother yeah. Runes, so. He's gonna keep mother runes around against a three-one flyer or a three-two flyer. Oh yeah, yeah. That seems it seems like a poor position. It's I think it's certainly better against the blue-white or blue-white red control decks like the Miracles because they have they are very mana intensive. They have um, possibly a lot of enchantments in play, and they certainly have planeswalkers which Cataclysm mucks completely. I think that might be a good matchup where Death and Taxes may want a card like Cataclysm, not necessarily against an, another aggro deck. Um, because of that reason, that its threats are not good enough to match up against the opponents. So Sam, overall, do you think that David basically just got unlucky with Greg's plays, or was there like a very obvious play mistake that you saw? Uh, looking through this, it looks like David's, for the most part, doing the best he can, but especially once Liliana comes down, the best he can is whatever he drew for the turn, which there's a lot of stuff in Death and Taxes that, if you draw it for the turn, isn't that great. Like, a Stoneforge Mystic that's going to go get something that isn't going to come down till next turn and you have no attackers and I think he just he gets so behind once he loses his board of two creatures that that's really the turning point in the game and then Greg gets up to a click a flip delver a termogoyf and that's just really difficult to come back from at that point and the game does go on for another 10 or 15 minutes beyond that because death and taxes does have that power to kind of just keep on keeping on but uh Eventually, that swarm Greg's been building just overwhelms David. Yeah. And our uh, good friend Greg, he wins. Spoiler alert. Uh, it's been a month out <laughs> since the event. but uh, Just in it's, case. It's a very interesting... Yeah, I think, I think the match is pretty, is pretty interesting to see. Just the interactions and the small little decisions made for each, um, for each turn. And how they could have possibly been played differently or possible lines of play to consider um, from each deck. Um, you certainly see how maybe the variance of top decks um, affect the overall pace of the game and you know who's able to be in control or who's able to close out the game, but I think for the most part there's some pretty good decisions made in this game. Yeah, I agree. Overall, I thought the play was quite good. I mean, I didn't see any obvious errors in playing. People are just playing off the top of their deck and doing the best they can, so... Yeah. So moving on from Greg's footage... And I'm going to talk about the journey into Nyx. Ooh, okay. Let me pull up the, um, the spoilers. Yeah. Into Nyx. Oh, man. It's been a lot of... Oh, my ears! My ears are burning. No one, Sam, I know you, I know you love your uh, your tactile keyboard, but no, nothing is loud. <laughs> I was trying to type quietly. So, uh... <laughs> I think let's start off with the most probably the most talked about thing in the spoiler, which is Mana Confluence. Let me hold on, scroll down a bit so I can make sure I can read it. So Mana Confluence is a rare land. Tap, pay one life, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. The immediate uh, comparison that's made is to City of Brass. So when is this better and when is it worse than City of Brass? Because it is very slightly different. So, Kobe? Mm. When is it better? Uh, for starters, it's standard legal. It's better in standard. That does it's not make it better. 
Okay, it's um. Hmm. When is it better? Well, it uh, it's better against Rishton Port. That was my point. <sighs> it's better in the sense that Dredge can now play eight copies of City of Brass as opposed to relying on Gemstone Mine or, for instance, uh, there's that one temple from Onslaught that pay three life at any color. Tarnished Temple, Tarnished Citadel. Yep. Um, so it certainly helps that matchup. It could potentially help um, Epic Storm, possibly. I think Gemstone Man is still preferred just because of the life loss is relevant and they don't plan on having a lot of mana in play to begin with. But uh, it's certainly an interesting card, um, and it's templated like City Brass, but not quite like it. Um, I think one of the main points um, where Mana Confluence is weaker is that the damage ability is not a trigger. So for instance with City of Brass you could pay for a spell as you cast it and then the trigger goes on the stack. Um, normally if you do it like that you would take the one damage then the spell would resolve. However you can flip that around and say tap the City of Brass, put the trigger on the stack and then cast your spell in response to the ping ability. So different ways to, uh, to look at it. I think one maybe obvious point that may not be completely relevant uh, not relevant, uh, evident, is that you cannot actually activate Mana Confluence if you're at zero or below life. Correct. <coughs> That's pretty much it. That's all I got. Well, one of the <laughs> other important things is Mana Confluence requires you to pay one life rather than lose one life or take one damage, which means if you've got Phyrexian Unlife out, you cannot tap Mana Confluence because you cannot pay life. Mm -hmm. That's another example of the very slight difference between them. I still like the card a lot, it's just I'm... I don't know if I would be too eager to um, get rid of my Arabian Night City of Rasses to replace it with Mana Confluences. There were some people on the Mana Drain talking about that where, even in situations where Confluence might be better, there will be a lot of vintage players who stick with their Arabian Night City of Rass. I would be one of those. Well, I think the best play is probably to split between them, so if you're playing two City of Rass, switch it to one and one or something like that. That's fair. Uh, I could certainly see, let's say if you're playing Vintage, and you're playing um, a City of Brass type deck, where Mana Confluence might be better um, against like a Tangle Wire, right? Because you're going to be tapping your permanents to Tangle Wire against a Workshop deck, and if you play Confluence, Mana Confluence, you don't have to worry about the life loss from City of Brass. You would just tap it and wait until you can finally You untap. also don't have to worry about them playing City in a bottle. What, you're not playing Whiteboard or City of Brass? <laughs> Oh no! Oh no! No, they changed that rule, man. Oh, now any city of brass is can be destroyed by a city in a bottle. No, and any curdate. Oh, right? well, that's unfortunate. And any mountain. Wait, <laughs> no, that doesn't work. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, yeah, uh, Arabian Nights was a very good set for the dredge deck <laughs> for two important reasons. One, the city of brass, and second. Obviously, the bizarre one their land, land base and two their land base. Correct. A hundred percent their land base. Yes. Uh, moving on. So oh, uh, sorry. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah. What What are some other interesting cards in this set? I think I heard a lot of murmur right. about a card called Dayside. 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 Yeah. It's almost like a play on Dayside. Yeah, you know, you get well, to I, decide judgment. I guarantee that there will be people at FNM who are mispronouncing that who will drive me crazy and calling it decide. <laughs> Correct. 
Uh, Deicide is Yuck. a rare. It's one in a white. Exile target enchantment. If the exiled card is a god card, search its controller's graveyard, hand, and library for any number of cards with the same name as that card and exile them. Then that player shuffles his or her library. And it has awesome flavor text, which is just, it is done, Elspeth. It is done. So, and it being an instant is actually quite, quite relevant. It's, it's a very good design card, very powerful. Um, I'm not sure how much more powerful than, let's say, Divine Offering uh, or Evoke Existence, for instance. I guess Revoke Existence is the one that can actually exile enchantments. Um, well, I think only in the context of it exiling or extirpating god cards does it become better. And if we're saying it only matters against god cards, then what we're saying is it probably doesn't really matter in Legacy or in Vintage. Right. But uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting exploration of how R&D is able to address its own kind of... The problems it creates. Card mechanics. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to find a good way to say that. It's like, how do they band-aid their own grievous wounds? And I guess this is one way to do it. Uh, I think there's another interesting white card, not so much in an interesting sense of like, wow, this is a great card, but interesting in the sense of direction that um, it looks like R&D is going. Um, if you recall in M... 14, I believe, there was a uh, card called Banisher Priest. Essentially, it's a, um, a version of Faceless Butcher, only that it didn't exile... It only exiled it while the card remained in play. So, on the same token, we have Banishing Light. It's two colorless and a white for an enchantment. When Banishing Light enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls until Banishing Light leaves the battlefield. So, this is pretty much just uh, Oblivion Ring only slightly tweaked so it doesn't affect your own permanence. Thoughts? Eh. Yeah. Thoughts about the direction that R&D is choosing to go with the exiling effects? Um, my guess would be that the reason that they have made this so it only affects your opponent is so that if you have or if your opponent has some sort of effect where you might have to oblivion ring your own thing, now you don't have to and have those feel bads. Right. Well, I think the tension sphere already solved that problem. It can't take your own cards. Or maybe it can. I forget. Yeah, but Oh, it's a May ability. That's the thing. Detention Sphere is a May ability. This one is a mandatory ability. But the way it's templated, there's no like room to be tricky with removal, where with Oblivion Ring there is. And I think this is kind of my complaint about dumbing down or simplifying the rules to the point where you lose out on interesting decisions. Here, there's only one decision. You play it, it comes into play, you exile something until it leaves. With O-Ring, you can be clever with the stacks. So for instance, a deck like Death and Taxes used to play Oblivion Ring. You would cast Oblivion Ring, put the trigger on, exiling trigger on the stack, in response activate Aether Vial on 3, putting in Flicker Wisp. Flicker Wisp comes into play triggering, targeting the Oblivion Ring, which still has the exile clause on the stack. What's the return clause? Return clause now now these play return clause triggers. There's nothing to return, so nothing returns. Um, the stack completes resolving. It exiles whatever card permanently. Like there is no more conditional conditionality about it. It just it's gone forever. And then at the end of turn, Oblivion comes in and grabs a second permanent. So I think that creates a much more interesting play once you're able to recognize what the interaction is and use it to much much greater effect. Whereas if you were just to use Banishing Light, all you would do is essentially flicker uh, an opponent's permanent 
until you know it just flicker it once and then at the end of the turn it would come back and exiled again. Yeah, well, I'm not a yeah, <laughs> not a huge fan. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of the direction these types of cards seems to be going. Um but at the same time it's probably not geared for legacy play. Yeah, like I've been saying, if uh, we get a, if we get a card or two out of each set, I'm pretty satisfied. Yeah. Uh so there's a, does there seem to be any interesting card for uh, Eternal Magic. Looks like we have a, a completion of the op of the enemy color gods. Um, I think uh, the black white god is interesting. I just don't know if he's good enough. Right, it's definitely aggressively costed. Three mana for uh, five for indestructible with an interesting uh, ability. It's um, Aetheros, god of passage, colorless white black, uh, indestructible. As long as you have s seven devotion to black and white, it isn't a as long as you have at least seven, it becomes a creature. Otherwise, it's just an enchantment. Um, and its flavor and its text is: Whenever another creature you own dies, return it to your hand unless target opponent pays three life. So it kind of puts the onus on your opponent to make sure your creatures remain dead. And I uh, think yeah, even Farika, God of God of uh, Golgari, is kind of similarly costed. It's a five-five for three mana, and this one is pretty much a glorified scavenging ooze. Black, green, exile target creature card from a graveyard. Its owner puts a 1-1 one, one black and green snake enchantment creature token with death touch onto the battlefield. Thoughts about the two? I think all the gods are too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It uh, looks like uh, our friend Matt has to go, so uh, thanks for joining us, Matt. Yes, thank we'll you very much. Up here. And I'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I have two more real quick that I do want to mention. Uh, mm -hmm. Godsend, which people had originally heralded as a way to deal with true name nemesis. It's a one. Wait, wait, wait. Is it God's End or is it Godsend? It's Godsend. It's all one word. If it was God's End, it would be apostrophe S space. And I hate all the people on Reddit who kept asking that question because they don't know how to read. <laughs> so it's. A Ironic because it's Reddit. Ha. So it's a one white, white legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus three plus three. Eh. Whenever equipped creature blocks or becomes blocked by one or more creatures, you may exile one of those creatures. Opponents can't cast cards with the same name as cards exiled with Godsend. So if you manage to get a guy with Godsend equipped on him, and they attract with a true name nemesis, or rather, they block with a true name nemesis, you exile it, and they can't cast it again. Hmm. It seems like more or less the text is saying, this creature is unblockable, and don't attack into this creature. Yeah, certainly. That's that's what I'm reading from the card. Uh, d what do you think of it? Do you think it can will be played at all? I think the only realistic deck or maybe pair of decks that could play it are um, like maybe Maverick style, so non-blue Stoneforge Mystic decks and Death and Taxes. Man, in Maverick can and I think in, can you imagine a, yeah, like an Maverick eight eight Knight of the Reliquary with plus three plus three and basically unblockable? No, because I'd almost <laughs> every time rather have Gta. Or Sword of Fire and Ice. Fair. Um, I mean, more or less, the only time p your opponent's going to block is when they're about to die. In which case, like, how's that going to be any different from, let's say, a card that just grants trample against True Name Nemesis? I'd, I'd almost prefer to have Loxodon Warhammer than God's End. At least that provides a relevant ability, and it provides a relevant racing ability against, like, a True Name Nemesis. Well, I think the primary thing that 
I think the primary thing that will keep this out of top tier lists is the three mana to equip is a lot. Yeah. So that means it's not getting equipped before turn four if you Stoneforge Mystic Ford on turn two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even then you're attacking for what? With a four or five Stoneforge Mystic at best? Because you spent one, two, three turns to deploy Three this. turns and seven That mana. doesn't seem... Yeah, that doesn't seem entirely the greatest. I'd probably skip on this. I think this is uh it might be a relevant card in standard. I doubt it'll be a relevant card in modern. So it, it's an interesting card and interesting design space that uh R and D is going for, but I don't think it's gonna see any play in Legacy in a competitive deck. Alright, I um, I do have one more. I think Sorry. Sure. Uh, Riptide Chimera. Riptide Chimera. It is a Let me pull that up. three four flying for two and a blue, so you're already quite above the curve here. At the beginning of mm -hmm. your upkeep, return an enchantment you control to its owner's hand, and it is an enchantment creature. Okay, so it's a 3-4, right? Yeah. Okay, there and it is. And so, um, being hmm. that we're in Eternal, our goal is to exploit things. So this is supposed to be return an enchantment to your hand, like punishing you to make up for the fact that this is a 3-4 three, for three. Uh, where I think... People, where I think this will just be absolutely insane is with enchantments that you want to return. For example, if in your upkeep every single turn you could put Mystic Remora back into your hand and then just recast it instead of having its cumulative upkeep go up every single turn, that seems pretty all right. Yeah, I could see it maybe uh, see play with Unstable Mutation. Oh. Yeah, that that would be pretty good. Um, I'm wondering if... Uh if there's a way you can manage to... Because the counters remain on the creature. They don't remain on the enchantment. The minus one, minus one counters, that is. So I'm wondering if you could use it as a quasi-removal spell. Um, or maybe just kind of picking it up, bouncing it. It's a cheap enchantment. Provides a huge boost. Uh, let's say you get this Riptide Chimera out. Attack for six with the Unstable Mutation next turn. Pick it up. Play it again. So on and so forth. This card really reminds me of... Um, there was like an Esper card from Shards of Alara. It was a 4-3 with more or less the same text about artifacts. So same casting cost, flying, 4-3. During your upkeep, return artifact you control to your hand. Um, I think artifacts tend to be more powerful than enchantments, especially recently because, well, I guess historically it's always been better. They just provide better abilities and better, more playability across a variety of decks. Yeah, I don't think it'll see Legacy play. I think maybe uh, like a blue-green Enchantress might want to play this uh, to re-trigger draw step effects, but I think at that point you've pretty much already established the deck's purpose, and it makes no sense to keep dirtling. Just find a way to close the game out as soon as you can. Yeah, I, I agree that it's dirtling is a good way to put it, that it, while you can do some really cool stuff with this, you'd probably much rather just you know win the game. There will definitely be people who try to exploit this and try and make something cool, and I'd be really excited to see something really neat come out of it. Yeah. I think another interesting card, maybe not so much for Legacy, is Master of a Feast. This is a um, black, black, colorless uh, enchantment creature. It's a demon, so of course it's already got a lot of things good for going for it. Uh, flying 5-5. Five, five. At the beginning of your upkeep, each opponent draws a card. So I think this is in a long line of um, undercasted 5-5s in black that provides some sort of drawback for you. And I think this one finally breached... Well, I, I know we had Phyrexian Negator, 
It's a 5-5 five, five for 3 mana. Um, however, its drawback was a little more steep. Whenever it took damage, you sacrificed that many permanents. This one seems uh, kind of innocuous com in comparison, um, especially if you can minimize the effect of your opponent drawing a card while you're beating them down with a 5-5. Five, five. Any thoughts on where we might see this, uh, this card being played outside of black aggro and standard? Um, well... You obviously have to make up for that's in, especially in Eternal, that's a really, really big drawback, letting them have two cards a turn. So what can you do to punish them for having a lot of cards in their hand? Um, I think you'd be playing this in deck with Liliana, with him to Turok, and probably something that hits their mana base as well so that they can't cast any of those cards. So maybe in a Pox-style deck as a finisher? Hmm, I think even there it's it's... Giving them two cards is, or giving them a card every turn, is a pretty big drawback. Maybe in like a, a casual underworld dreams kind of deck, where you want them to draw cards so you can continue at giving them damage. Yeah, yeah. I think the most interesting thing about this is, yeah, it's going to be an undercosted five-five flyer. The drawback is going to be pretty big. Uh, and then the rest of the cards seem kind of like they have a lot of flavor. They have a lot of flavor text. Worth mentioning, there's a lot, a lot of, words of cards that are. <laughs> there are a lot of cards that are kind of almost functional reprints that are enchantment creatures that do an effect that we already had. Uh, there uh, were yeah. It, it seems like white white seems to be like the big standout in the set of having cards that have already been printed and have been printed now as an enchantment creature. And I don't really think it's worth getting into any of these other than. It is both an advantage and a disadvantage. It's an advantage because you can go get them with different tutors, and you can, or you can either vial some of the enchantment effects in, but at the same time, they're going to be easier to kill because more hate removes them. Other than that, whether or not you play them is dependent on how those factors weigh out in your deck. Exactly. I think there's a, a version of Ether Sworn Canonist, or a variation of kind of a rule of law uh, enchantment. The effect of that, you can only play one spell a turn. Um, this time, it's another hate bear. This time, three mana which makes it weaker. Uh, you get to deploy it less quickly. Uh, maybe this is geared more towards modern format, uh, where Wizards is really trying to kind of patch up the um, the vulnerability of the format to the Storm deck. So uh, I think there's another Hate Bear along that same line. You have Hexproof, very similar to... True Believer. Card's name's True Believer. I was thinking like Spiritual Advisor or something like that, um, which essentially has the same card text, but as a 2-2 for white-white, versus Aegis of the Gods, um, which is printed in this set, colorless in a white, 2-1, you have Hexproof. So I think the one toughness makes it a little bit more vulnerable, so it pretty much won't be able to attack. Um, they still both die to bolts, so just like any creature, it's always going to be able to be killed some way. But I think, uh, I think white has the most promising cards in terms of uh, Eternal. I don't think we'll see maybe more than one being played. Yeah, maybe something like uh, Aegis of the Gods played in Death and Taxes at other sideboard because you can vial it in. Right. I mean, both it and uh, True Believer are humans, so we'll see. I don't think it really fills a need for Legacy. I think it's more so for Modern, which still doesn't have... which now adds another card that has that effect that's going to be legal in Modern. But we'll see. The set looks... Uh, well put together, but not necessarily legacy. It's a lot more uh, le legacy and vintage players are a lot happier about this set than they were born of the gods, and that is not necessarily a compliment. 
there is one interesting card that uh, may or may not be relevant for any format, but there is a card that literally reads, you gain 100 life. Ah, yes, the face of the set is the new Ajani. I did mean to uh, bring that up, because you gain 100 life is possibly the best text that was ever been on a card. Yeah, uh, I was kind of joking around when uh, this card got spoiled earlier in the week, saying, are people still excited about getting 100 life? Because I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. With children the, of Corliss. This can definitely do some funny stuff in a casual deck because it's a it's three oh, green yeah. white. Starts with four loyalty, plus one, distribute three plus one plus one counters among one, two, or three target creatures you control. Yeah, this I mean the first ability is that's the reason you're playing. Can this you card. imagine it's, this in a populate? It's able deck to where um, all your count where you get extra no. counters. Not populate, it's uh <laughs> what's the one where you get extras of every single counter? Doubling season? Yeah, doubling season is another doubling thing that's season. insane. Just every, all your counters doubled. Also, yeah. a Johnny ticks up way faster. Right. So, yeah, I think it's definitely geared towards a casual crowd. Um, it's kind of interesting to see that a Johnny as a character starts off as like a mono-white lion, and the next set he becomes very angry. He turns, uh, splashes a little red. And then in the next printing, he, uh, he becomes a caller of a pride, so he gets a little more lean, drops down to three casting costs. And uh, still has that telltale plus one plus one counter on target creature, um, still with four loyalty. And then now we see a third, fourth iteration of a Johnny who's now green white, so now he's the mentor of heroes. Um, and actually, even the second ability is not too shabby either. It reads plus one, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal an aura, creature, or planeswalker card from among those and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom in any order. So this is almost like an impulse for um, relevant cards. And I could see the second ability as a way to generate card advantage. And I think that's going to be important for a Planeswalker consideration in a constructed format. Well, the fact that it has two plus abilities is already pretty nuts because he, with distributing those counters, getting creatures into hand, it's going to be really hard to attack him. Yeah. All right, I think we need to wrap it up. Uh, I've got to go to WanderCon up here in the uh, Anaheim Convention Center see some uh, cosplay and get some stuff signed so um, unfortunately I haven't been playing Magic recently too much, uh, maybe you want to share an interesting play that you had Sam? Um, my play of the week is I played Vintage against a bug deck that was playing Ashiok Ooh. purely for its plus one really? It's just to exile cards? yeah, Well, and I was playing TPS so if he exiles your, uh, your Tendrils of Agony you just go alright cool game two <laughs> Seems like there's much better cards for that. You can play Extract. Just the old blue, search your opponent's deck, exile one card. But interesting. Well, cool. I'm glad to hear that you're uh, getting into Vintage. Maybe we'll uh, do a meetup at Eternal Weekend this later this year? I probably won't be at Eternal Weekend. I'll probably do the GP instead. Okay. Uh, well, there we go. Grand Prix, New Jersey, hosted by Star City Games, which means it'll definitely be an easy one to attend. You'll probably get a mat, and it'll only cost 40 bucks, maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll have to mention the uh, little scandal that happened uh, earlier this week with Grand Prix readjustments. So, a little yep. uh, tidbit for next week once uh, kind of the dust settles on that little controversy. But uh, that's going to wrap it up for me. i got to get going. All right. Adios. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Feedback is always appreciated. Email us at everydayeternalcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcast or follow us on Twitter at eternalmtg.